Welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory. And I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Erica Padgel, our CIO of Sustainable Investing. As we near the end of the first quarter of 2023, we're thrilled to have two guests join us that have deep insights into what is surely one of the most fascinating technological developments of the new year, the developments in generative AI, as demonstrated most vividly by the viral rise of ChatGPT, a large language model that has set new records amongst consumer tech applications as the fastest to reach 100 million users. Our guests are also well-situated to give us an update more broadly on the tech sector, which has seen a fairly dramatic reversal of fortunes in the first few months of the new year. John Bassett is a partner of NextGen Venture Partners, a network-driven venture capital firm that's part of Brown Advisory and was an early investor in Everlywell, Carta, Mercury, and Maven Clinic, among other breakout companies. We're delighted to have John give us NextGen's boots-on-the-ground view of how entrepreneurs are looking at the AI space, as well as what's happening in VC more broadly. We're also delighted to welcome back Joe Pasquilicio, an equity research analyst on our tech team who focuses on the internet sector. But before we dive into that, let's talk about the macro. And let me put in a plug for our listeners to check out our new asset allocation outlook piece, which can be found on our website and linked to in the show notes here. Since we spoke last December, we've seen a wave of positive surprises in economic data as better than expected employment figures, higher retail sales, and lower than expected default rates in credit markets have all painted a rosier picture of the economy. The U.S. consumer still appears healthy and with a declining but still significant war chest of excess savings. We've seen one of the warmest winters in decades in the U.S. and Europe, which has helped calm fears of an energy crisis and has increased retail foot traffic during the winter months. At the same time, China's about-face on COVID policy has led to a rapid reopening of that economy and has improved the global growth picture. While inflation remains elevated, investors seem convinced that we've reached a peak and are on a downward trend. And what we've seen in markets is a rebound in stocks. Global stocks are up 4 to 5% this year and up 14% from the October lows. Investors have begun pricing in the potential of a soft landing in the economy, the rising prospect of a rate hiking cycle that won't push the economy into a recession. European markets have led the way up 9% this year and up 20% from the October lows, as the worst case for both the war and the winter appear to have been avoided. Growth in technology stocks have also rebounded strongly, and Meta, which we talked about in our last podcast, has seen their shares rise 95% from the lows after finding religion on cost-cutting measures. And we'll talk about that more with Joe later. But ironically, the most recent economic strength we've seen has been viewed as problematic. A new scenario on investors' minds is not a soft landing, but a so-called no landing. What if the economy remains so strong that we'll need even more rate hikes to stamp out inflation? That's good news in the near term that could lead to less favorable news in the medium term, as more rate hikes could lead to a harder landing further down the line. As economic and jobs data has strengthened in recent weeks, stocks and bonds have actually sold off a bit. Inflation expectations have been increasing, and bond yields have risen towards their highs from last year. Investors have been pricing in quickly declining inflation and rate cuts in the second half of the year, which is a benign outlook that appears less likely the longer the labor market remains hot and other inflationary drivers remain. One topic we've discussed at length is the idea that we're transitioning into a new regime for markets, one where cash flow is king. Valuation is in focus, and inflation may be structurally higher, and central bankers won't always be able to come to the rescue. 
As rates rise, stocks are no longer the only game in town. When one compares a 5% yield on a 12-month U.S. Treasury bill to an 8% expected long-term return on stocks, the game has changed. The so-called equity risk premium, which is the additional return compensation for investing in stocks over bonds, has gone from historically attractive when rates were at 0% to well below average with rates nearing 5%. We've seen flows out of stocks and into bonds and would expect more as we exit a period where investors had their highest allocations to stocks since the late 1990s. This environment has led to continued shifts in our portfolios as well as we seek to rebuild our bond exposure and to maintain or increase our exposure to value-oriented strategies and inflation protection portfolios for this new regime. As we reflect back on the learnings from the 2000 tech bubble bursting, which bears some similarities to today within pockets of the market, we're also keeping in mind that there can be many false dawns and that market action will eventually influence the actual fundamentals of the businesses that we're investing in. We need to remain patient, even as stock valuations have improved with the market declines, bond valuations have improved even more. With that, let me bring in our guests, and I'll start with Erica to talk a bit about the investment landscape. We've seen the strong rally at the start of the year uh, seems to be fizzling out somewhat. What's your take on what's going on in markets today? It's been another seesaw ride for the market this year. We saw a strong equity rally in January, followed by a pullback in February. Despite the volatility so far this year, uh, there's been a, you know, a welcomed positive performance for a lot of asset classes. And as you mentioned, we've seen positive performance for both equities and bonds. Essentially, everything that worked last year is underperforming this year and vice versa. So growth has outpaced value in large caps by nearly 6% technology, consumer discretionary, communication services are the top performing sectors, each posting 10% or greater returns. On the flip side, areas that tend to do well during inflationary periods, such as defensives like consumer staples, are down this year. Same with utilities and healthcare. Energy is also negative. So what's going on? You know, there's, there's really been a shift of market expectation by investors. We reached a point late last year where bearish sentiment peaked. PE multiples on the S&P 500 contracted more than 25%. There was optimism about the reopening of China, improving prospects in Asia as well as Europe. And there was really this light at the end of the tunnel bear market rally. Investors being really hopeful that we're close to the end of rate hikes and high inflation. Options turned bullish earlier this year, and we finally started to see some negative earnings revisions. So if you look at the S&P 500 X Energy, keep in mind energy companies um, made up a lot of the earnings growth last year. We actually saw earnings revisions for 2023 estimates decline more than 11% from the peak last year. That may not be enough, but it's a significant improvement and a much needed reset to drive markets. So there was a lot of investor optimism to kick off the year, probably too much. And this optimism, as as Sid mentioned, has waned, um, particularly over the past month. And there's three areas. So inflation still remains high. Some areas like services are not budging. There's strong economic data. And then there's a Fed that's appearing to be more hawkish. The Fed is indicating more hikes until inflation moves lower, so that terminal rate is moving higher. There was hope that disinflation would pick up the pace. The latest CPI print does not show this. Um, You know, there's, there's needed direction from the Fed for the markets to really stabilize and for us to get out of this, this volatility that we're in. Although we've seen markets pull back some from their highs this year, 
the markets still seem to be pricing in the most optimistic scenario. So, Sid, you mentioned kind of this soft landing or no landing. And right now, S&P valuations are, are really not that cheap. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. We continue to be in a data-driven market, and the current data is supportive of a, of a stronger Fed. So we always talk about the consumer. Uh, the consumer is very important to the health of the economy, particularly in the U.S. Have you been surprised by the strength of the consumer throughout this kind of rate hiking cycle? And how long can this go on in the face of rising rates? Yeah, all eyes are on the consumer right now, particularly as services are being seen as the stickier part of inflation. The consumer has been surprisingly resilient in the face of higher prices. So let's let's take a little bit of a back step. So early on in the in the pandemic, consumers and households built up a lot of savings, right? We we were all home, there wasn't a lot of spending. So these savings combined with a lot of the stimulus propelled consumers to spend. If you look at last year, the first three quarters of the year, consumer spending was responsible for the economic growth in the U.S. economy, according to the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. The data shows that households still have savings, but there's been a fair amount that's been drawn down. There's really no way to get at the exact amount, but we estimate it's more than 50%. But this is tricky. There's likely an income gap here meaning that lower income households may have exhausted these savings more. You know, a couple other areas that that we that we spend a lot of time looking at is, you know, money market funds are at record levels. There's estimates that there's more than 5 trillion out there that could just be be because we're finally garnering a nice yield of more than 4% on our cash, but that's money that could absolutely flow into the market. There's also a few signs out there that consumers are being more careful about their spending. So we're finally starting to see some shifting consumer habits, a shift towards essential purchases. So if you look at some of the retailers, uh, their most recent earnings, Walmart, Target, you're seeing not only are, are consumers looking for discounts, but they're spending a majority of their basket on household products, on food. Um, you know, another area that we look at is the Federal Reserve recently said that credit card interest rates hit a multi-decade high at the same time that growth of credit balances have hit their highest rate since 2011. So we're starting to see signs that the consumer has had to supplement spending by drawing down savings and increasing borrowings. You know, wages is another area that, that I know we'll talk about today with, with Joe, particularly from, from the technology side. We've seen some wage growth, um, but it's, it's not keeping up with inflation. It's absolutely helping to support consumer spending, um, but, you know, real incomes are, are still negative uh, uh, after inflation. That's helpful context. Yeah, it, it does appear like we're running a little bit out of gas uh, with the consumer, but it's been, I think, surprising to everyone how long uh, consumers have been able to keep up the pace of spending, and that's surprised growth to the upside. Uh, let me hit just quickly an another risk that's out there uh, that I think we have to talk about, and it's the debt ceiling risk. Erica, what's your take on the risks now that the U.S. Treasury is already taking extraordinary measures to avoid default? How is it impacting your investment views? I'm so glad you asked that question because I, I, I do feel like most of the conversations that, that we're having with clients and internally is so focused on inflation and interest rates. And 
there's a lot of other issues out there um, outside of those two areas, geopolitical risks, deglobalization, and yes, the, the debt ceiling. So here we are again, the U.S. government could be in a scenario of running out of money between July and September of this year. That limit was actually hit in January, the limit of $31 trillion. Um, you know, I, I would say that, that it is worth noting that Congress has supported raising the debt ceiling more than 70 times since 1960. The last time that there was a more serious issue was in 2011 when we came within a few days of default, uh, but ultimately that legislation was passed. The markets were volatile during that period. The S&P did pull back um, more than 15% and the 10-year Treasury dropped. But this often becomes a political issue. There are similarities today to that time period, such as a split Congress. But, you know, as we approach early summer, this is likely going to cause some near-term volatility in headlines. We're not making shifts in portfolios in anticipation of this outcome. What we are watching is sovereign CDS spreads. We're watching the Treasury bill curve for any implied risk that might be out there. Within fixed income, we remain defensively positioned from a duration perspective. Sid, I'd, I'd like to turn it back to you. What trends are you seeing in the market today, and what are you watching? Uh, biggest trend for me is just the rise in interest rates. So all this stronger economic data has led to a kind of higher for longer outlook to interest rates. We've been talking about that for a while, but we've pushed out even further um, how high uh, you know rates will be. So we're now peaking at close to 5.5%, uh, and rates at the end of this year are now expected to be nearly uh, three-quarters of a percent higher than we thought even a month ago. So this higher for longer, I, I think, is a, a big trend. And as I mentioned in my opener, I think people need to pay attention to the falling equity risk premium. So stocks just don't look all that attractive relative to bonds right now. So while stock valuations are kind of at their long-term averages and there are certain stocks that are great bargains and certain markets that uh, are cheaper than others, um, you know, the long-term that many look at is kind of the last 20 years. And that was a period where interest rates were lower actually than they are today, if you can believe it. So uh, higher rates today would argue for lower stock valuations, and most investors were running with elevated stock allocations when rates were at zero, and that made a lot of sense at the time. Uh, I think those allocations probably need to come down. They are coming down, but they probably are in the early innings of coming down, and I'm still uh, a bit conservative, I think, as a result of that, even if we're finding a lot of compelling you know, bottom-up stock opportunities today. Uh, so if you add onto that the amount and the speed of the tightening that we've seen in financial conditions, I see you know, a higher probability of a recession and a decline in earnings than appears to be priced in by the market. So uh, this has led me to be kind of modestly reducing equity exposure in favor of bonds. We're doing this across the board, rebuilding those bond portfolios. Um, and, you know, the other thing I've been watching is real wage growth. So, you know, for a, a while, growth in wages, uh, you know, was uh, not keeping pace with inflation. As you mentioned in the opener, that may start to reverse as inflation is falling. So if, if that could provide further legs uh, to the story, that's something I'm, I'm going to look at. Thanks, Sid. Yeah, you know, wage growth at, at about 5% uh, is absolutely supporting a lot of the economy right now and, and, and helping with those consumer purchases. 
We've talked a lot internally about the relative attractiveness of valuations for international equities. How, how are you thinking about international equities? And does the reopening of the economy in China change your perspective? Um, it's a great question. Uh, I think international markets do certainly appear cheaper than the U.S. And uh, I mean, China in particular is an interesting one because it is an economy that is moving in a different direction than us. They are reopening. Um, they are loosening monetary policy. They are, uh, you know, loosening their regulatory regime. Um, you know, China's been one of the best performing markets the past few months. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were fielding questions about whether China was investable. Um, so, you know, I think this could be good for uh, Chinese stocks um, where valuations are at near multi-decade lows. I think the op reopening is good for the global economy uh, and for businesses that are reliant on uh, Chinese consumer spending. So, um, you know, as an anecdote to share, our largest external partner in China uh, is running with their lowest cash balance in years, and they're actually launching a new strategy with a three-year term to take advantage of the opportunities they're seeing in that market today. But more broadly, much like in the U.S., China saw a huge increase in savings as a result of the pandemic. It was even a larger percentage of GDP that went into excess savings in China. And unlike the U.S., the Chinese consumers haven't even begun to spend those savings down. So that could be a boon for consumer brands, luxury, and otherwise. Many of those are actually out of Europe. Um, selling into China, travel-related companies geared to China, and it could also put some upward pressure on commodity prices, which have fallen a, a bit from their highs. Um, so... You know, I, I think in general, when we're thinking about rebuilding bond portfolios, I think I'm, I'm more in favor of doing that a little bit more from the U.S. side and leaving the international exposure uh, that we have intact because of those drivers. So perhaps we can now turn to Joe and John. Um, I'd love to uh, hear both of your perspectives on what is the most compelling thing you're seeing from an investment standpoint, but also lean on your expertise as we dive into the topic of AI. Uh, John and Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you focus on before we dive in? John, maybe we'll start with you. I help lead NextGen Venture Partners inside of Brown Advisory. Uh, NextGen is an early stage venture fund. Uh, we like to think of as the first uh, scaled network in early stage venture. We have built a network of over 1,700 business builders and technology leaders around the country. And we use those thought leaders for kind of three important things. Uh, one, it's a boots on the ground perspective to help us source deals and get a sense of what's happening in the zeitgeist and, and what tech is top of mind for companies. Uh, two is using those experts to help diligence opportunities, understand uh, different pockets of competition around the country and around the world. And three is to support those companies post-investment by utilizing their expertise, their Rolodex, and their relationships to help make key introduction to those businesses early in their life cycle. It's been a great partnership with Brown Advisory. Uh, they anchored our fund one and helped scale our business. Thanks, John. Uh, Joe, maybe over to you uh, for an introduction, even though you are a returning guest to the show. Uh, maybe you could give us some of your background, what you're focused on. Yeah, thanks, Ed. It's great to be back here with you and Erica again. Um, I'm a member of our institutional equity group, where we bring together fundamental investigative and ESG analysis to find long-term high conviction stock ideas for our portfolios. And more specifically, I'm a part of our technology sector team where I focus on internet media and software stocks. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Joe, 
given your focus on some of the major tech bellwethers, I know we talked about Meta last time, but I'd love your view on the most recent earnings season and, and what we can take from it. Yeah, generally speaking, tech and internet stocks have performed well to start the year, but most of that has come from multiple expansion rather than revisions, which were negative in many cases. So I think the moves have been more macro or technical in nature, perhaps a bit of a January effect um, rather than any indication of fundamental performance. So as a general theme for internet stocks in the fourth quarter, I would say a lack of visibility was really the way I would characterize it as management teams grapple with the slowing top line. I think there's a healthy debate whether we're seeing tough comps from last year or if recession worries are starting to cause um, a bit of a pause and spend. But I think in either case, we're hearing that boards are pushing their management teams to act now as a precaution. And we saw that manifest in forward guidance that came with a much wider range than usual. And in some cases, even an, elimin an elimination of certain guidance metrics. Um, and unsurprisingly, we saw management teams respond by really focusing where they have more control, which is on the cost side. Um, we saw OPEX and CAPEX expand meaningfully last year as companies invested to chase some of the outsized revenue growth uh, that was generated by consumers flocking to digital platforms and e-commerce sites during the pandemic. And now we're seeing some initial signs of consumer strain, such as trading down and a shift to more consumable and less discretionary goods. And this has really led to headcount reductions, you know, elimination of unprofitable side projects, rationalization of office leases, and even pauses in data center builds. Um, and as Erica mentioned earlier, one of the ways that we're monitoring it on our team is looking at the excess savings that's with the consumer, um, which peaked you know, in the summer of 2021 and now is drawn down, as Erica mentioned, over 50%. So we think there's some gas left in the tank and this could be driving some of the continued strength we're seeing in certain verticals like travel and restaurants. Um, but you know, we're certainly we're certainly starting to see the pressures build up on the consumer, at least the initial stages. And it's something that companies need to be cognizant of. We think a little bit of caution is warranted. And maybe to sum up the earnings season, um, you know, going back to Meta, CEO Mark Zuckerberg coined 2023 the year of efficiency. And I really think that is a great representation of the whole sector right now. Um, virtually every management team discussed cost cutting or efficiencies on their earnings calls. And where management teams made the most progress on cost reductions, we saw their stocks get rewarded the most by investors. Um, and I'd be remiss to, to, to not mention that AI was mentioned over 60 times on Alphabet's call and on many other tech earnings calls. It was also another major theme in addition to cost cutting. So Joe, you mentioned cost scanning a number of times just there as well. Um, I know we've talked about it, and you have some interesting views on the cost scanning, both in the kind of layoffs and the CapEx side. Would you mind sharing some of those? I mean, I feel like you aren't as impressed or as confident that those trends will continue. Yeah, sure. I, I really actually applaud the discipline companies are starting to show. I question the magnitude and maybe the sustainability of some of those cuts. Um, for example, Alphabet cut... 12,000 positions, which I think will reduce OPEX by perhaps $4 billion a year. And that sounds like a lot on its own, but Alphabet has increased its headcount by 40% in just two years and added 55,000 net rolls in that time. And so if you go back to the previous quarter, they actually added 12,000 hires in 3Q22 alone. So this reduction in force really only takes us back about one quarter in terms of headcount growth. 
And at Meta, we, we saw the same thing where headcount almost doubled in just three years. And although we think Mark Zuckerberg might have a more, more of an appetite for sustained reductions in this year of efficiency, um, we still think a lot of these reductions in OPEX growth may come back um, once the economy picks up. On the CapEx side, we heard about companies pausing data center spend. We think a lot of this is simply convenient timing with companies rethinking their architectures for the future with AI top of mind. That includes shifting from using CPUs to GPUs and thinking about energy and cooling at these data centers. And I'm concerned that some of the pause in this spend may come back once those plans are finalized and perhaps the macro picks up a bit. But overall, I think the investments in AI are going to continue to ramp and this will really necessitate an increase in OPEX and CAPEX spend going forward. And we think companies have an opportunity to optimize their resources today by moving them from loss making, you know, side projects and pet projects to more core projects that are going to deliver long-term profitable growth. That's really helpful. So maybe maybe don't bake all of those uh, cost cuts in or kind of model them out for the next few years as we may see um, some of the, the CapEx uh, coming back up. Joe, that, that's really interesting. And there's so many parallels between the tech industry and, and other industries as far as consumer spending habits. I'd love to hear some specific company examples and, and what you're most excited about uh, in, in this current environment. Yeah, sure. You know, I think one of the ideas that we've discussed previously was the trade desk. We still really like that idea. The stock had a big move on their 4Q earnings report. The stock was up 33% in one day. Um, and that's really, I think, a reflection of the fact that the company continues to outpace the rest of the digital advertising space and is really taking meaningful share in the industry. And that's something we, we really like to see, especially in difficult times, are, are companies taking share um, in the face of that adversity. And so our top-down research highlighted connected TV and retail media as the best growth areas in digital advertising. And our bottoms-up research highlighted Trade Desk as the best way to take advantage of those trends. And so aside from the secular drivers, we think Trade Desk could be a big winner um, from any regulatory impact as well, including Alphabet's ad tech stack, which is being called into question. Um, and so we think that one will continue to take share over time with a lot of upside catalysts. Um, we also like Meta, which we've talked about. The stock's nearly doubled off the bottom in early November. Uh, we've been adding to the company in, in one of our funds on the idea that the company just had a massive opportunity to grow free cash flow by cutting OPEX and CAPEX. And we also saw engagement improving on the platform and we're receiving positive feedback in the channel checks that we do about Reels monetization and their AI tool for ad buying, which they call Advantage Plus. So we, we think there's a lot of positive momentum there, both on the top line and bottom line. Netflix is another company that we've added to in our portfolios. Um, like Meta, the stock has almost doubled off the lows. Um, we've been adding in our flex strategy following a tough 1Q22 quarter where investors were doubting the company's strategy. Um, I like the setup here, which is that content spend has really started to flatten out driving a lot of leverage in the business model. And we think the company is gonna be able to generate meaningful free cash flow in the years to come. And we also like their initiatives around password sharing and releasing a lower cost ad supported model, which we think will allow the TAM to expand and really drive positive user growth. And while we do expect some choppiness around the password sharing crackdown from disgruntled consumers in the near term, we think that'll pan out positively in the long run. 
Another stock which we've added to recently in certain strategies is Alphabet after a pretty big decline, you know, over 15% since the chat GPT news flow took over, which I really think is a bit of an overreaction. Um, the stock is now trading at an 8% free cash flow yield, something we haven't seen in a long time. And despite the flat footedness in the wake of the chat GPT release, I do think that Google ultimately has the better technology and they dominate the mobile browser market where the majority of search takes place. So between Google Chrome and Android phones and the contract Google has with Apple to be the default search engine on Safari, Google actually has a 97% market share um, of mobile search. And so we think they'll be able to defend that position. Some new ideas coming out of the quarter um, have really come in the music industry, um, both Spotify and Warner Music Group. We think music can actually be more resilient than video streaming because unlike video, there's little incentive to switch or cancel your subscription. Whereas for video, you might be willing to live with one less subscription if money is tighter, or maybe you'll cancel after you watch your favorite show. In the case of Spotify, they've really outperformed since earnings. Uh, the company has stated that next quarter will be the bottom for gross margins. And we also expect a price increase to come through shortly following Amazon and Apple who have already increased price. In the case of Warner Music, um, we really like the, the industry of the music labels. It's going up value chain a bit. Um, they're direct beneficiaries of price increases and have a very favorable industry structure where a lot of those price increases flow directly uh, to the labels. So that's another angle uh, that we're looking at in the music industry. One area we're getting a little more cautious is Etsy. We still love the business model and the management team, but it's getting a, we're getting a little bit more cautious on the uh, high valuation and potential for consumers to pull back on discretionary purchases as things get a bit tighter. Um, and we saw their most in their most frequent customer cohort report that their their most uh, frequent users are actually starting to decline a bit. And so we'd really look for a better entry point once forward growth rates will become a bit cleaner for the company. So, John, maybe switching gears to, to venture, Joe talked a lot about uh, companies having a lack of clarity for earnings in the back half of the year. Uh, and looking for ways to create efficiencies in their business to offset any potential slowing growth as, as we move forward in this environment. What are you hearing from companies today, and, and what do you think are the biggest opportunities in this market? Yeah, thanks, Erica. Um, I think we're hearing a lot of similar things to what, what Joe is sharing. Uh, I've typically found that private market businesses tend to be one to two quarters behind uh, some of the action that's being taken by their uh, public market peers. Um, what we're sort of counseling in the boardroom and what we're hearing from companies is that there's a renewed focus on unit economics and contribution margin, um, which is a very different tune from the last five to seven years when the message was grow at all costs. Don't worry so much about contribution margin or unit economics. You can figure those things out when you get to enough scale. Uh, but today we're saying, hey, there's a very uncertain funding environment. Uh, unlike a lot of public market comps that do have free cash flow, um, almost all the businesses that, that venture and, and we invest in uh, are burning cash. They are not profitable. And so there's a renewed interest on um, making sure you have real contribution margin, dialing in kind of customer acquisition costs uh, and lifetime value of those customers uh, and focusing back on kind of the core value of the product offering in the market. So, John, you mentioned uh, that some of the trends are maybe a quarter or two behind uh, in the private markets. What about on the valuation side of things? Where are we in the in the reset of valuations and venture relative to, to public companies? I mean, we did see in the news recently Stripe 
uh, a very late stage uh, private company cutting uh, their valuation by 50% or so uh, to become more in line with public comparables as they raise a big round. Um, is this a widespread trend? Is it more in the later stage? What are you seeing in the earlier stages? Yeah, thanks, Sid. I, I think this is a um, widespread trend. I think it's most acutely felt at the the kind of mid to growth stages of business. So we think of that as uh, kind of Series C, Series D, and beyond into the pre-IPO phase. Companies like Stripe, uh, but I'd say thirty to fifty percent haircuts are are fairly typical, kind of across the asset class. Um, we're laser focused on early stage, and there we've seen you know valuations come down anywhere from thirty to kind of forty five percent. I think the most successful founders, um, those with kind of a history of, of successful businesses, are still able to command slightly higher valuations, 15 to $20 million pre-money valuations. Uh, but for the most part, we've seen valuations come down in the kind of single digit millions for, for early stage businesses. Um, I think it's important to remember here too, we're, we're coming off the tail of a, a seven year uh, sort of party in the venture asset class. Um, historical new capital coming in, uh, again, a renewed focus on growth, less focus on kind of profitability or fundamental unit economics. Uh, and I think that's finally come to an end. Um, Q4 of 22 was the lightest quarter for new funds into the venture asset class in the last nine years. And it typically takes, you know, a couple of quarters or a couple of years for that capital to flow into the, you know, venture capital ecosystem. And so I think we've returned to what I would say are historical 2015, 2016 sort of valuation frameworks. And I think that's actually a healthy thing for the, the industry and the asset class. Uh, I do worry a bit about companies, you know, unlike Stripe, Stripe is a very good fundamental business. I think there's going to be a lot of orphan late stage businesses that haven't figured out their core business model or unit economics. And I do have some concern about where those businesses go from here. John, maybe you can share a couple company examples, um, you know, companies that you're currently invested in that might see that valuation reset. And then where the valuation reset is happening, what has presented opportunities? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think when, when we think about the areas we like, you know, we tend to be enterprise focused investors. So B2B, there's sort of consumer investing and there's enterprise investing. We're laser focused on the enterprise side of the house. Um, and within that framework, you know, most of our investments are packaged and delivered as SaaS, software as a service. Uh, we really like healthcare, the data economy. Uh, more recently, we've taken an interest in climate and AI. Um, it's interesting in the venture world, there tend to be core themes that I think are always interesting investments. Uh, if you look at GDP, it's some of the biggest drivers of GDP and sort of opportunity to innovate and drive cloud adoption in things like healthcare, education, real estate. Um, and then there's sort of the more zeitgeisty themes as I think about it, right? We're coming off a period of Web3 and crypto. That was sort of the hottest investment area over the last 12 to 18 months. I think we're ending a new era of climate and artificial intelligence. Um, I do think these two themes will have a bit more staying power than maybe Web3 and crypto. Um, and so excited by some of the potential of, of these industries. And we'll get into the AI piece a little bit later in the conversation. Uh, as far as our portfolio, uh, we think there continues to be huge opportunity. Uh, you know, one example is a, a company called Abet, touches on both healthcare uh, and the data economy. Um, there's been a lot of underlying changes in, in healthcare, sort of at the federal level, 21st Century Cures Act, uh, price transparency rulings. Um, those have been very slow to be adopted. So enter a company like Abet, which is able to get real-time claims data out of the large insurers. 
when you have that data, you can do a bunch of incredible things. You can adjudicate claims. You can switch providers much more seamlessly. You can find better point solutions to address the needs of your underlying patient population. And so while we've seen legislation come down that should enact and force some of these changes, when you're looking at a, a business that's you know hundreds of billions of dollars in spend, it's very hard to move the Titanic. And so uh, we're looking for opportunity within, within healthcare, within the data economy, um, and helping sort of take advantage of an opportunity in the market that we see. John, that's, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, maybe, as you mentioned, we can turn our sights now to the conversation on, on AI. Maybe you can set the stage for us. What is the hype around chat GPT? That's kind of what started this conversation. Uh, is it overstated? And, and maybe you could start by talking a little bit about how we're already interfacing with AI and what is different about the generative AI and the large language models like ChatGPT. Uh, and then we can get into some of the use cases you find most compelling. Yeah, thanks, Sid. Um, first off, I think the consumer excitement around generative AI is real. ChatGPT from OpenAI is the fastest growing consumer application in history, reaching over 100 million monthly active users just two months from the beta launch on November 30th of 2022. Um, when something novel like this comes out, people are going to want to try it immediately, especially if it's free to use. We saw Bing go to number four in the App Store for a day before dropping back. Google's app is still floating around number 10. Getting consumers to change their long-term habits is really tough. There may be a bit of a flash in the pan here. It's a very novel experience, very engaging. It's fun to kind of play around with. And I think that's what we saw with a very quick drive to 100 million users. Um, I think there's some open questions about the long-term stickiness of some of these you know, fun applications. But I do think it is important to highlight here that consumers have been using AI in various forms for the last few years. When you use Siri on your phone or get products recommended for you on Amazon, these are just two examples of AI assisting your life. I think an example of a large language model AI listeners may have interacted with is the autocomplete function in Gmail. And that's where you start to type, certain words get recommended, and you have the ability to automatically complete your sentence. So what is different this time, I think, is a success of the generalized large language models. Um, there's been you know, various successful milestones in the AI field over the last few decades, um, and I think what you know, listeners have probably heard about is some of the more specific AI successes over the years. Uh, things like AlphaGo and Deep Blue, which is the AI that was trained to beat chess, some of the world leading you know, chess masters. And those are two examples that come to mind. But this is really the first time we have seen successful, generalized, large language models being used at scale. Hasn't been without hiccups. Google had some on-stage errors with their AI launch, which led to a one-day drop of almost $100 billion in market cap. Similarly, Bing had some comical errors in its search results driven by OpenAI's chat GPT. I mentioned Google and Bing because that largest near-term opportunity feels like serving better search results via, you know, instead of Google's PageRank algorithm. But one key consideration here is costs. There are also compelling use cases around copyright creation, legal document prep, and other forms of content creation. So you talked a little bit about some of the limitations or drawbacks in the technology, right? We've seen some uh, interesting search results, you know, kind of users asking ChatGPT uh, for, you know, fictional characters, lists of books they've written or movies they've done. And, and, and you know, what ChatGPT does is it gives you an answer no matter what. And the answer may be entirely bunk or made up. Um, and there's 
really nothing in the way of kind of citations to know where this is coming from. What do you see as the biggest, you know, limitations or drawbacks? Yeah, it, it feels a bit like the Wild West in the early days of, of these, you know, chat GPT models. Um, I think some of the biggest limitations are, you know, how you prompt the system today. You know, I've played around with a few different um, solutions out there. And depending on the way you ask the question or the, the voice or style you ask it to deliver a result in, you can get very different answers. The, the AI is always going to answer, which I think is an interesting consideration. How it answers, what voice it uses, what sources it cites. Um, you know, if you're asking for sentiment on a you know leading public figure, is it going to pull from uh, left-leaning or right-leaning news outlets? Are you able to get kind of a, a clear list of sources cited and and the relevancy and recency of those sources? And so, you know, I think it's it's a little bit like training wheels for a while. There needs to be real key guardrails. Um, in the early days, lots of folks have have jailbroken the system, if you will, and been able to get around some of the guards that have been put in place. And so, I think the system—it's a game of cat and mouse where they have to continually put up new guardrails to make sure they keep users in, inside a kind of defined set of criteria. You know, I also think there's there's some uh, real regulatory questions that are going to come out of this. I think there's some um, defense and kind of international security questions that are going to come out of this. And uh, we're all kind of in the early days. We're just months into this, what I think is going to be a years-long journey with AI. And so getting these guardrails right, understanding these prompts and how to use these systems is going to be really important. John, there seems to be more and more interest in this space. There's more and more capital flowing in. How are VCs thinking about this opportunity? Is this a venture opportunity right now? Great question, Erica. I think VCs are definitely thinking about it. If you read the you know tech headlines, uh, you'll certainly see you know rise of mention of AI. Um, I just got a first look at Y Combinator's 2023 batch. 51 of 183 names are AI startups. 32 of them are classified as generative AI. Uh, so it's clearly in the zeitgeist. It's, it's clearly kind of top of mind for tech investors today. Um, if you look at where the money has gone, and it, it's fairly early days, uh, but it's almost exclusively to enterprise content creation. So Jasper AI was early in the news, raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just this morning, Typeface announced a $65 million round of investment for enterprise content creation. Um, Tome is really focused on design, you know, content creation for enterprise around design, PowerPoint design, slide decks, things like that. So it's become very clear. I think you've got to find a use case where um, you can add value and sort of take these high skill knowledge workers uh, and maybe have them focus on um, more focused activities, right? Think about legal document preparation. Uh, could we have AI start to prep legal docs or contracts, start to prep more blog content, and then bring in more editorial humans kind of at the last stage to sort of edit down and fact check you know, a lot of this work? Um, I think that's where the dollars are flowing today. Um, one thing we think a lot about is um, where is there demand? If you think about basic economics, there's supply and demand. Where am I going with this? Uh, AI has created, it's basically dropped you know, cost to almost zero to create new content. Dolly can create incredible works of art in sort of no time and no cost. ChatGPT can create incredible articles, no time, no cost. You've still got to find the use cases where there's clear demand on the other side of that equation. 
And so we think today it's mostly an enterprise. There's been some very interesting use cases of AI and drug discovery. Think about biotech and some of the key use cases there. There's multi-billion dollar um, you know, success fees if you're able to successfully manufacture and, and patent a new drug. And so that's where we're seeing the early dollars go today. I think it's going to continue to shift. I think uh, venture investors are going to take risks on some very novel kind of industries and figure out where there is real value. And I think the biggest question, there's kind of two focuses on the AI world here. One is using the existing parameters and APIs that OpenAI and others have put out there. Faster time to market, uh, but less defensibility around you know the quality of product. There are some startups that are taking a more cost-intensive approach of coming up with their own large language models. Takes a bit longer to commercialize, but when you do, you've got something much more defensible and sort of the algorithms and, and models you have put together there. Joe, you also mentioned earlier that you know, you see some of these big tech companies kind of waiting on CapEx spend because they're trying to optimize their server structure for this wave of, of AI. Could you talk about, you know, what are some of the other potential winners in the tech ecosystem with what we expect to still be kind of increasing adoption? Yeah, sure. So we've we've been on dozens of expert calls trying to understand who's going to really benefit uh, from this trend in generative AI um, from the hardware side, kind of the picks and shovels, if you will. And so, you know, for example, uh, I would say the conclusion of every one of those calls has been NVIDIA as a clear winner. Um, their own analysis suggests that the training needs of transformer models are growing 275 times every two years. So transformer models are growing larger. You know, we're moving in on a you know, trillion parameter model, which really needs a lot of compute for both training um, and real-time inference, especially. Um, and NVIDIA is moving from their A100 to H100 chip, which is another innovation uh, which will drive some of this compute. So our tech team likes NVIDIA. Um, we also like monolithic power systems is the best ways to play the theme. Um, I would caution that valuations are beginning to reflect a bit of the buzz on the generative AI um, wave that's going on right now, but we think there's gonna be a long-term sustained improvement in fundamentals um, as AI continues to ramp in the coming years. Thanks, Joe. John, maybe switching gears a little bit, but staying on topic of AI, you mentioned earlier some opportunities within climate. Can you talk a little bit about the ESG, environmental, social, govern and governance opportunities and risks with AI? Yeah, thanks, Erica. Um, you know, I think similar to Bitcoin mining and some of the concerns around the crypto world, um, AI processing consumes a lot of energy. And so you have to think about kind of the underlying use cases and are these worth the energy required to power them? I think a bunch of folks asking novel questions to get funny results, consuming a lot of energy and power to produce those results, not a great sort of ESG look. Uh, if we think about things like AlphaFold, creating life-saving drugs or, you know, helping kind of humans at scale, um, very important and very valuable use of sort of energy consumption and AI. And so um, I think we have to be really thoughtful about what use cases, you know, we're considering here, how much energy consumption goes into those use cases and kind of the underlying benefit of uh, the solutions that AI is, is creating there. Um, I think the other area we have to think a lot about is data ownership uh, and a traditional internet model. Um, there's sort of attribution, affiliate marketing. If a, a company monetizes or sells as a service, there's ad dollars that transact and there's, you know, pretty effective piping to sort of capture that and, and route payments and attribution. If we move to a world, you know, earlier I had mentioned, you may ask about sentiment on a public figure. Um, 
AI may pull 12 or 13 or 17 different sources to come up with that result. And if you are just surfaced that result, how do you think about compensating the underlying 17, you know, journalistic sources for that information, right? Does it get split 17 times, you know, rateably one seventeenth? Is one source more influential in that answer than another? And how do you think about crediting that source? And so I think there are some real challenges here with uh, attribution, um, compensation, and things like that. The traditional, you know, internet architecture today has has pretty well worn systems for that. And moving into this new world, I think we have some some real questions to answer around, you know, attribution and compensation. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much, everybody, for that. I know what we've been talking about here with AI are things that are pretty far down the line. Obviously, more immediate impacts to some of the tech companies that are in portfolios today some of the impacts that are going to be felt certainly in the venture world are going to be many, many years down the line. And and we have some exposure to that uh, in our private portfolios already and surely to be growing. But maybe we can zoom back out and conclude this with a discussion of what we're doing today in portfolios. Erica, what are you up to? Yeah, I'll highlight a, a couple of areas. Last year, we had a much more defensive posture, which helped uh, protect on the downside for many of our clients. This year, we're looking to unwind some of this defensiveness, uh, particularly in income-oriented equities. We now are in a a place where a lot of fixed income assets and treasuries are yielding more than 5%. So we've been unwinding some of that defensive exposure, some of that dividend-focused exposure that we've held in portfolios for the better part of, of 12 to 15 months. We're adding to fixed income, maintaining short-term treasuries, but looking to add a little bit to duration. We also continue to like small cap. Uh, you know, we, we particularly thought that small cap was attractive from a valuation standpoint late last year. We continue to think that uh, small caps are attractive. They tend to be less affected when borrowing costs change. Um, they tend to have more of their end consumers and customers within the U.S. And then when we look at negative earnings revisions, we've seen significantly more earnings revisions from U.S. small cap when compared to U.S. large cap. Sid, maybe turning back to you, what are you doing in portfolios? This sounds so pedestrian after our deep discussion on AI and everything you just said, but uh, for me, it's been all about rebuilding bond portfolios. It's all about interest rates have come a lot higher I think bonds are starting to look attractive relative to stocks on a risk-adjusted basis. And, you know, it does feel to me like we're getting a little later cycle and we're closer to a moment of weakness in the economy. So keeping the credit quality really high, uh, given that corporate credit spreads are, are below average, they don't look particularly attractive right now. So kind of funding some of the rebuilding of that bond portfolio uh, through some of the equities, the defensive equities you just talked about that we were using when rates were so low, but also some of the other uh, diversifying allocations uh, to things like hedge funds that we're using a lot more of when we had no interest rates to speak of. So kind of rebuilding and simplifying portfolios has been the big theme for me. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This was a really great conversation. We went a lot of different places, and I feel like I have a much better picture of what's going on in tech right now and the developments in AI. Thank you so much, uh, Joe and John. I look forward to having you both back on the pod. And Erica, thanks as always. 